The scripture we're going to be reading from today is Genesis 3, 16 through 24. And if you don't have a Bible, I believe the scripture is going to be up here on the screen. So, Genesis 3, 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out of his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, away, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. check this. Hey, we're good? All right. Well, some of you know that I have been in a war. And it's a war against squirrels, weeds, and elements. I know some of you guys, oh, there he goes again, starting off getting all serious talking about a war like I did my last sermon. But about a year ago, I was fed up with my lawn. My lawn historically looked like a dumpster fire, like basically a field of dandelions with a few uh, blades of grass trying to, being suffocated and trying to live. It also had huge ditches everywhere, like someone bombed our house before we moved in. And so I mustered up more money than I felt comfortable, and I reseeded and re-lawned, uh, re-sodded my whole lawn. Anyone's ever done that? It's an it's a undertaking. No one's done that but me. Okay, I feel embarrassed about that. And my lawn looked fantastic, like golf course good for about two months. Um, and then it, it now is terrible. Again, it, it has been um, a labor, um, watering constantly, fighting squirrels, constantly destroying our lawn, um, the weeds suffocating it, and, um, and I have cried. I have frust- I've been so frustrated. It's been so difficult. And that is something that some of you guys know, but I felt like I have been fighting against the curse of the ground. And it's been frustrating me, exasperating me, but as you guys know, that is a first world problem. Some of you guys are like, oh, first world problem, you have a bad lawn, all right? Well, we also know other things more close to heart. Micah and Jess, who are um, missionaries whom we support in an unreached people group, they have um, recently just went into labor, <clears throat> and she walked, went into the hospital thinking, fifth child, I got this, I'm a pro, been there, done that. 
And while she is in labor, her blood pressure dropped significantly. Micah had to be rushed out of the room of his wife, and she could have died. And they had to do emergency C-section, and now, um, and it was very, very rough and terrible for, for some time. But by the grace of God, we have a healthy baby and a healthy mom. But that simple story that just happened a few, a month or so ago, just illustrates the reality that all of us know deeply is that this world is not as it ought to be. Even so, something so simple as wanting to have a respectable lawn is filled and fraught with labor and strife and struggle. And having children can be difficult at every level. Everyone here feels it. Some of you right now literally feel the brokenness of your bodies. You feel it. You feel the strain. You feel death and decay taking root into our bodies in this world. And so this morning, we're going into one of the most important texts of the Bible. And if you've ever wondered, why is the world the way it is? And if you ever have coworkers or friends or family members who wonder, why is the world so messed up? Everyone has different theories of why the world is why it is and what is the great solution. And this text actually gives us the answer to those really important questions. It gives us the answer that we can all cling to. Let me ground us in the context of where we've been with Genesis. Last week, Pastor Ross showed us what happened as a result of man's rebellion. Adam and Eve, they sin, but instead of running to God for mercy, they hide in their, their shame. But God in his mercy, he seeks them out. And one of the most shameful acts of all of history, Adam, passive Adam, instead of owning up his part, he throws his God-given wife under the bus and blames her, and then also blames God for giving him Eve. One of the most shameful acts of all history. But God in his mercy has patience with them. And he makes a promise, a mysterious promise, but a definitive promise that out of Eve will come an offspring a new head of the human race that will come and destroy the works of the serpent. He will be the serpent crusher, the redeemer for all of our mess. And so now after hearing God address the serpent and cursing the serpent, he's now going to address Eve and direct to her and announce to her the punishment for her rebellion. Now look at Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's a lot here. And if you're actually reading and listening, you're probably like, whoa, what was just said? In the previous section, I think it's important to note that the serpent is directly cursed. Cursed are you, serpent. But in our section, if you keep reading along or if you want to skim quickly in your Bible... Adam and Eve are never directly cursed. Now, I don't know, as much as I've tried to research, the, the little nuances between consequence, punishment, discipline, and a curse. There are nuances and differences in Scripture. But I think it is significant to note that mankind is not directly cursed in this passage. I don't know all the implications of that. If you know, tell me. I have some ideas. But nonetheless, there are consequences for their rebellion. And what we're going to see in this section is that both the woman and the man, 
their primary sphere of where they do their life will be deeply strained and pained. Note that I said the word primary. I didn't say only, but the primary sphere for the wife and the husband, the spheres where they mainly live and reside for most, will be deeply strained and pained. Now, there are two major sections of the verse. Firstly, let's talk about childbearing. You don't really need to read the Bible to know this first part to be true, right? Women, yes? Husbands who have been in the room and you got punched in the face or she squeezed your hand super hard, you know this, that the pains of childbirth are unparalleled in our world in many ways. But not just painful, but dangerous. Throughout human history, so many women and children died during childbirth. Even those who had the most luxurious, the most highest amenities, like Queen Anne of England, she was pregnant 18 times, and not a single child grew up to adulthood. 18. Can you imagine the child, the heartbreak, the anxiety of every time getting pregnant again? Will I lose another one? But I think this text is not limiting the challenges for women to just in labor, but the whole realm of children whether that's the anguish of miscarriage that many of you here know, the pain, painful reality of infertility, the discomfort of pregnancy. Just look at Charlotte. She's in constant state of discomfort. <laughs> Peeing all the time because the bladder is being pressed. Okay, all right, that's too much, right? <laughs> I don't know. I just know that, that in my marriage, that that's what happened with Joanna. Okay, all right. <laughs> But I, she said, I'm not right. He speaks the truth. All right. But I also think it is connected to the realm of raising up sinners as a fellow sinner. Parents know the pains of raising little sinners. At a young age, you see the heart that goes wild and a heart that wants to push against boundaries and rebel. And yet what, what is most painful is not just the fact that you're dealing with little sinners is that it reveals how big of a sinner you are as a parent. Brings the monster outside of, outside of you. And there are pains that only parents understand. The anxieties that can be uniquely debilitating as we worry and we're anxious about our children of how they're turning up and if we're doing a good job. There's nothing like that. So let's move on because I think that is pretty uniformly understood by all of history and all of scholarship. But let's look at the most doozy of this text. Verse 16. The New American Standard Version says it like this, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is one of the most controversial verses in the Bible on gender roles within marriage. And so I'm gonna spend more considerable time, especially in light of the hot topic that it is in our culture and how much we need to understand this. So is this verse saying that Eve is going to oppose her husband? Or is it saying that as part of the curse, you're going to greatly like your husband? (laughs) No, right? You're going to desire your husband in a good way. And what about the husband? What is it saying about the husband? Will he rule with an iron fist? Is that a good thing? Is Is God commanding him to rule over her? Is he saying, hey, 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 men, uh, the women are going to run wild or are going to do something wrong, and so you need to hold her and put her into check, keep her in check. Is that what the text is saying? So, Now that I got your attention, we got to ask ourselves, what does this word desire and rule mean? 
This is going to be challenging, but, but let's focus in. I'm going to try to do my best within a limited amount of time to tell you where I, my, I get to my conclusion and not just tell you my conclusion. I want to show you my work because I want to train us as people to be able to go to the source and not just be like, well, my pastor says this, right? But go to the source and know how to study the Bible for yourselves as well and keep me in check if I am off in my interpretation. So whenever you study the Bible, the most significant factor in helping you understand what a word means, this word rule or, or understand this word desire, is context. Context is king. It trumps almost everything when it comes to Bible study. So desire just can't mean the common way that we use the word desire, like I desire a burrito later on. You can't impose your modern-day English, American English understanding of a word and say, well, that's what it means here because that's how I understand the word desire. You actually have to go to the context and understand what the Hebrew, the original text is actually saying. And we know that Adam and Eve were already given in chapter 2 the command to be fruitful and multiply. And I think that I could confidently say that implies that there was desire within the marriage. And if you read throughout the scripture, desire in marriage is celebrated. It's a good thing. It's not like a bad thing for a woman to desire her husband emotionally, uh, romantically, and sexually. That's a good thing. That was pre-fall. So it can't mean that it's like a good desire and women are cursed for desiring them. This word desires is hard to understand because in Hebrew, it's only three times in the Old Testament. And whenever you have a word in the Bible that's not used many times, it gives you less opportunities to understand in different contexts what that word means. So it's tricky. It's used one, two times in the book of Genesis, in our text and next week's text in chapter four, and then one time in the Song of Solomon. Let me ask you a question. Which occurrence of the word desire should we wait more or put more focus on? The one from another genre, another author, another book, or the one in the next chapter? Next chapter. chapter. Proximity matters when you interpret the Bible. That is an important principle you need to hold to your heart deeply when you study God's word. So look at Genesis 4-7 with me. Genesis 4-7. The context here is God speaking to Adam, uh, sorry, Adam and Eve's children, Cain, specifically, after they just did a sacrifice. Genesis 4-7. If you do well, speaking to Cain, will you not be accepted? He's, he's complaining that God has not accepted his lame sacrifice. And if you do, <clears throat> if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door its desire is contrary to you or for you, but you must rule over it. See, what 4-7 describes is sin's attempt to dominate Cain. Cain is seething with anger, feeling the embarrassment of his offering not being received the way he would hope. And so in that emotional state, he is easy prey for sin to come and pounce like him like a lion. Waiting, you can hear that language, and I'm not going to take away from Pastor Daniel's sermon too much here. But Cain is commanded to fight back, turn the tables, and dominate sin and desire. So now, let me put up on the screen two, these two verses parallel with each other, <clears throat> being as literal as possible in the Hebrew. I want you to stare at them. Do they look familiar? 
Your desire will be for your husband and or but he will rule or master over you. I'm doing slash because those words can go either way. The word vav for and is and, it could be and or it could be but. Verse seven of chapter four, sin's desire is for you and slash but you must rule and master it. Okay, this is gonna be some tough work. Are you guys ready for it? Yes, okay, a few of you are, all right. This word, desire, can have a few, has a few primary interpretations. And let me just be honest with you, okay? I know what we want from preachers is certainty. We want pastors to say, I know everything. I got the answer. Let me tell you it. But let me be honest with you. These three interpretations have a lot of good pros and cons to each of them. I'm going to tell you which one I lean towards and why but I want you to know that there are other really godly men and women who believe differently from me, and they have good reasons behind it. I think they're wrong. <laughs> That's why I have my, have my position, but I don't say it very strongly. I think they're wrong. That's, 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 that, that's the kind of posture, all right? I, this, so let me tell you the two other interpretations, and then I'm going to tell you about mine and why. So number one, um, Timothy, Timothy J. Keller, whom I tend to agree with most things, he, he says that the woman has this word desire is like an idolatrous desire. She, she wants her husband in an unhealthy way, deeply. Number two, this is another common one, John Walton prescribes this, is that the woman has a strong desire for the man because she has a strong desire for children. And throughout history, you understand that historically, many women have this innate desire for childbearing. And because she desires children and the man is needed to have children, she has this desire for him. And then man, because he's in a position of being needed, he has a, 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 a foot to, to then abuse that in his sin and, and dominate her because she needs him. And there's good reasons from the text and from society that both of those positions are supported by some. And let me share with you my interpretation. It's an interpretation that the ESV is trying to help us understand what the, what's going on here. If you look back at Genesis 3.16, your desire, this is the ESV and the NLT does something similar, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This last interpretation that I lean towards primarily lean into two points of evidence. Number one, the fact that the woman's desire is then followed by, in that same phrase, by the husband ruling her, connects them in some way. And number two, Genesis 4-7 is just, just a few verses and has the almost identical phrasing. Scholar Victor P. Hamilton says it this way. <clears throat> be on the screen. The desire of the woman for her husband is akin to the desire of sin that lies poised, ready to leap at Cain. It means a desire to break the relationship of equality and turn it into a relationship of servitude and domination. The sinful husband will try to be a tyrant over his wife. Far from being a reign of co-equals over the remainder of God's creation, the relationship now becomes a fierce dispute with each party trying to rule the other. The two who once reigned as one attempt to rule each other. As Derek Kidner has famously said, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. So there's a lot more to this, and I'm going to get back to it. But wives, those who are married here, 
I believe this text is saying that you will be highly tempted to buck against any God-given authority in your marriage. It doesn't mean you will always feel this way, but this will be a temptation, especially if you have a husband who will try to lead in any way, whether healthy or unhealthy ways. And if you have a passive husband, you may not feel this at all because he's passively not leading. So you don't need to follow any authority. Now, before you think I'm just throwing all the women under the bus like Adam, the guys are not off the hook. Let's look back at Genesis 4, 7. Because if we're not careful, twisted men will and have brutally abused this passage. John Walton makes the point that the Hebrew grammar should be translated on the screen. Your desire is toward your husband and the result of it is that he will rule you. What what does that mean? Why is that significant? Because God is not telling men what to do, but what they will likely do. Do you hear me? God is not telling the men what to do, but what they will likely do. This is consistent with also the punishment of the man in the next section, is that there is a curse of the ground, and what are the results of that curse? Is that there's going to be toil and sweat and struggle. It's what will likely happen, not what is prescribed. Now, let's look back at Genesis 3 and 4 comparatively. Can you put that back up on the screen, David, or Andy? In the instance of Cain in chapter 4, God is directly speaking to Cain, and he's commanding him, you must rule over sin. Do you see that? He's commanding him. In the case of Genesis 3, he's speaking to Eve, and God is speaking about Adam in the third person and merely stating what will inevitably happen in marriages because of the fall. Do not equate these two like women are sin, okay? Sorry, guys, any guys who thought that. No, your, your, woman, your, your wife is not sin, right? And you are not commanded to rule over her. It is a natural consequence of the fall that will likely happen if we are not careful. Tim Keller puts it this way. Sin will tend to make the man make an idol out of power. The word rule means to lord it. Don't forget, this is part of the curse. The Bible is teaching sin will tend to make men try to dominate women. That'll be their tendency. They will need to feel good about themselves because of their emptiness that sin creates. And one of the ways in which they are dealing with the emptiness that sin creates is by getting into relationships with women and pushing them around and keeping them under their thumb, lording it over. This passage is not a command nor permission for husbands to domineer their wives. If you take that interpretation, husbands, you are falling to the very reality of this text. There is no passage, hear me, there is not one single passage in the Bible that commands men to lord or rule over their wives. Not one. Listen, God does command wives to submit to their husbands as the head in their marriage. Look at Ephesians, look at Colossians. However, that is very different than a man forcing his wife into submission. Men, you do not have the burden from the Bible to make your wives submit. That is not yours to carry. They're accountable before the Lord. This is significant. I mean it. This is huge. 
See, because of the tendency for man to abuse his God-given authority, God commands men to not lead their wives here, that's assumed by them being the head, but to love their wives with the same kind of radical, patient, tender, and sacrificial love that Jesus pours out onto us every day. This is the way to lead, but to lead like Jesus. It's so easy, so easy for any leader to fall into the trap of just telling someone what to do, and you listen to me because I told you so. That is lazy and unchristlike. You listen to me, wife, because I'm your head. You obey God's word. Do not ever say anything like that. That is lazy and unchristlike. It's much harder to be patient, prayerful, and persuade and lead like Jesus. But listen, reject the other extreme. The extreme of passivity where you do nothing because you are afraid. Maybe you grew up, men, maybe you grew up with a, hus- with a dad that domineered your family. And because you are terrified of becoming what your father was, you are afraid of any form of authority or leadership in your home. And though that may sound noble, that is not noble. Being afraid and losing all nerve or conviction to lovingly lead your family is not noble. That's cowardice. That's the other extreme. It's the very sin that Adam fell into when he opened the door to all this mess, passively letting his wife being tempted and deceived. Husbands, both extremes must be rejected. And in our culture, we don't like rejecting, we only like rejecting one extreme because it's easy, it's lazy. We don't like living in the tension. There's so much here, there's so much here. This this deserves many sermons, but we gotta move on. I welcome you to have more conversations of what that would actually look like within the home because the devil's in the detail. Oh, that's probably not a good term anymore. uh, um, Yeah, that's right. Complexity is in the details. All right, so walk with community and how that fleshes out in your marriage. Let me conclude this one section. Family is going to be hard. At the fall, something happened when it came to roles in marriage. There was always equality and yet distinctions with authority before the fall. Eve was made from Adam. God calls out Adam first, even though Eve was the first who sinned. She was called his helper, and yet the ideal design was that they harmoniously work together to display the glory of God and make his reign beautiful and multiply multiply image bearers throughout the world and expand what's in the garden. But something shifted. So no longer will there be beautiful harmony, a beautiful dance, a divine dance between the man and woman, but now there's going to be a lot of fighting, a lot of offbeat steps, and a lot of toe-stepping. Both husband and wife will fail to love as they're called to love. Both men, both will struggle with either fighting authority or abusing authority. Most of us here grew up with families where that's a firsthand experience for you, and you've experienced the devastating effects of a passive or a domineering dad and husband. And let me make this clear. The answer to to neglect or abuse or misuse is not throwing all authority out. That is not the answer. Reject, Reject the culture's mantra that all authority is inherently evil, church. Please, Reject that lie. Authority is a gift from God, but often abused by fallen men and women in this world. So 
Church, we must redeem what has been lost. We must redeem authority. We need to show a better way, a truer way, God's way. And if you feel like your marriage is hard or your parents' marriage is hard, this passage tells you why. Should be hard. There will always be challenges in our marriages, but we have hope. What's the hope? Because of the gospel, we don't have to fall into these patterns. We don't have to fall in the same patterns our parents did. We have Christ as our example and the Holy Spirit empowering us as our helper to lead us to redeem what was broken by the fall. But it's going to take work. Do you believe that, that your marriage is going to take work? To thrive, to flourish, your marriage will take work. I have never met a mature marriage that did not put in the work. If you are not working hard on your marriage, your marriage is mediocre at best. At best, and likely unhealthy. There is so much working against your marriage to thrive. It's like you're working, and I just thought about this before I came up here. This whole cursed kind of world, because of the fall, is like we're pre-fall, we were in a stream, in a river, and it was working with us. So it's just like, it's just easy. You know what I'm saying? It's like you're on an escalator going one way. And because of the fall, it's all working against us. So everything that should have been beautiful and easy, now it's possible to still be beautiful, but it's just hard. You're just working against the currents. It's difficult. Your marriage is working against the currents. <clears throat> if you're not actively working on your marriage, I'm going to say something hard, your marriage is already in the process of drifting because of how everything is working against it. I remember once giving counsel to a brother that I recommend that he work on his marriage. I said it gently. It's a long conversation. I didn't just be like, hey, by the way, I never talked to you. Work on your marriage, right? It's a long conversation. Fill in all the nuances there. And this brother was so offended at me, so offended and hurt that I would even suggest that he would get some work with his marriage, and I gave him some examples. It was only until a year later that he realized, realized that every marriage needs work. Do not fall into the lie that only marriages on the rocks need work. Just like a garden needs constant tending to thrive, so do our marriages. So get counseling, keep dating, read books together, meet up with other couples, pray for your marriages often, talk deeply on how you can better love and work together. Church, I, I just so, my burden as I was prepping, I, I came so late, I like showed up at 10.30, like today, because I just felt like I couldn't get this section right because my burden is so, I have such a deep burden for our marriages and our church to show a better way, to show a better way than what we had growing up, to show a better way than the world's empty promises about marriage or not being married. And, and I, I want that so badly for our church, for Lebanon, for all peoples, to, to show a better way. Now, verse 17, back to the man. We're going to spend less time on this section. <clears throat> Would you read this with me? Genesis three seventeen. And to Adam, he said... <clears throat> it's interesting to note that for Adam... He gives reasons behind his punishment, <coughs> but he didn't do that for Eve. This is interesting. What's the reason? Because he listened to his wife instead of God. 
I heard one scholar put it this way. Eve listens to the serpent. Adam listens to Eve, but no one listens to God. Husbands, it's good to listen to your wives. Some of you need to listen to your wives a lot more than you do. (laughs) Women say amen. Amen. But not if she's encouraging you to disobey God. Good, good, good to follow up both, yeah. Be bad if she's like, amen. And then when I said not to obey, disobey, she's like, <laughs> Let's talk about what's cursed here, the curse of the ground. Work is not cursed. Notice that cur- work is not directly cursed in this passage, but the ground is. Work, according to chapter 2, verse 15, is a gift from God. It's a good thing. We'll likely have work in the new heavens and the new earth, except it will not be toilsome. Just like in our section with the wife, the woman, we get a consequence in what will inevitably follow after that. So the ground is cursed, and because of that, work and eating will be a pain for the rest of their lives. Look at verse 18, and we'll put it together. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread... Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's so much here, but for the sake of time. I take it that this curse of the ground includes all of creation, not just the ground. So all of creation, hurricanes, everything, everything is now twisted. It means that, a, that all of creation, though it's still good, it's been changed and twisted in some sense. Look at Romans 8, to just give you that point from the scripture and not my opinion. For we know that all of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So all of creation is groaning. That word groaning is not like, oh, I'd like it to be different. It's like, oh, be different. Earthquakes, famine, brokenness, relational harm, everything about everything under the sun is now twisted and broken at some level. And now the result is that things die. This, this line of from ground you will go, like just enters this picture of death. Good things are hard now. Good things are hard to grow. In the beginning, before the fall, the garden was exploding with fruit and life. It wasn't hard for Adam to tend to the garden. And now it's super hard to cultivate fruit and crops. Anyone here a gardener? Anyone have a garden? I have a garden in the backyard. Everyone knows how hard it is to bring in good fruit. You have to worry about a million things for it to be good. As part of the fall, things are hard. So the result of all this is that work intended to be a gift from God is now covered in thorns. Work used to be a pleasure, and now we cannot work without sweat on our face, both literal and figurative. It's pokey and painful. It's frustrating. It's toilsome and wearisome. It's hard. So if some of you felt like work was really hard this week, this is why. It's normal. Even the best jobs are going to feel this as well. <laughs> and I heard one preacher say, you know how long Adam was alive? He was alive for like 900 years. <laughs> so Adam was doing work for like 900 years, and you and I complain about a job after six months. <laughs> Adam's like, are you serious? Nine? I started complaining at 700 years. <laughs> now, on a more serious note, can you imagine how Adam and Eve would felt, feel after all this? I mean, they, not only are they feeling the shame of their sin, the disappointment from their creator, but the consequences they just heard would be enough to beat them down into inconsolable misery. 
But let's look at the hope that God has spoken to Adam and Eve in these moments. Just before, in, in the last passage from Pastor Ross's sermon, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Please take a listen if you didn't from last week's sermon. But right here, there is great hope that despite our sin, God is going to bring about an offspring, a child from Eve that will slay the serpent. So when we get to verse 20, Adam's words are profound. The man called his wife, wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. This may seem insignificant with a quick read, but what we see is that Adam listened carefully to God's promise to his wife. Though things looked bleak, he saw the promise. God would let them live. And they would not just live, they would have children. This whole passage is full of death and tragedy, but there's a glimmer of hope that Adam is believing God's word, and despite their sin, there will be life and it will come from Eve. What is faith? A simple definition of faith is just believing God's word, believing and trusting God's word. Right now, this is a small glimmer of hope that Adam is putting faith in God, in Yahweh's words. How does God respond to this simple act of faith? Verse 21, and the Lord God, or Yahweh God, remember that word Yahweh is God's covenantal special name only for his people. And remember what did the serpent and Eve do in the midst of talking about their sin? They took out the personal name of God and just talked about God as general creator, Elohim. And now Yahweh is back in this picture. And Yahweh God, what did he do? He made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Who's the, who's the uh, human author of Genesis? Moses. Okay, so he's Moses is, and he's writing to the original audience, which is Israel, and they know about the sacrificial law and the Levitical processes, and they knew the law, and, and for them to have skins, for God to be able to clothe Adam and Eve with skin, there needed to be an animal, right? You don't just skin an animal and be like, see you later, Right? You can shear an animal, but that wouldn't be the word skin. If you skin an animal, that animal is dead. It's sacrificed. Just like if you were skinned, you wouldn't live. So what we are seeing here in verse 21 is likely the first animal sacrifice made by God. Adam and Eve are seeing right now the price for their sin. They never have experienced death before. And then their presence likely. They're seeing the consequences of their sin, the bloody, painful, destructive consequences of their sin. Someone has to die so they don't. And if you understand Leviticus, the process of sacrifice, the, the priest would actually keep the skins for other means after they would do the sacrifice. But in our text, God doesn't keep the skins. He clothes them with skins. Look at the verse. It said this, God made it and he clothed them. This is a beautiful glimpse of the gospel. But in the gospel, it's not just some random animals. Jesus sacrifices himself in the place of our sins. God, in one sense, dies so we don't have to. And those who are trusting in Jesus are now clothed with Jesus' righteousness. God clothes our shame by taking our blame. Amen? You see that? God mercifully clothes them. And it came at great cost. 
the cost of an animal. And one day, an even greater cost, the cost of his son. Now, this passage does not end with hope. And I'll bring it to hope, but because we are still in the midst of the fall. Look at Genesis 3.22. Then Yahweh God had said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. There's a lot here, but I gotta be brief. Check back at my last sermon on knowing good and evil to understand more about what this means. But in verse 17 of chapter two, God said that when they eat the tree, they would die. So the punishment is now carried out here. And we've been preaching about it for weeks, but this was the same day, okay? They're going to be separated from access to the tree of life. And thus, the countdown to death begins. Death and decay will be slowly have effect on its body without this tree. But what's the problem? Why does God have a problem with them living forever now? He didn't before, but now he does. Well, there's a few things, but just one. One of the biggest problems with the world after this point with the fall is that mankind never progressively gets better. They don't. That's a myth. If you just read the next few chapters, man gets progressively worth, worse. With the cursing of the ground, the death and decay enter the world, man spirals downward with his sin. So the reality is that apart from Christ coming, forgiving, and transforming us, mankind gets worse. So one of the worst things that could ever happen to wicked man is to stay alive forever, because if they stayed alive forever, they would just get more and more wicked, more and more sinful. There's more in that passage, but for time. Final verse. Do you know the greatest consequence of the fall? Do you know it? Do you know it well? It's not the inevitable challenges within marriage. It's not disease or infant mortality, nor the curse of the ground. It's not even death. Look at verse 23 with me. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, the greatest problem with the fall, the greatest consequences, is not that we lost the amenities of Eden, but we lost the presence of God. That's the greatest consequence. Do you believe that? Not the fact that we have death or decay or sickness or struggle or work is a pain, but that we lost direct access. Because what was it like before the fall? Man could walk with God in the garden. Every child, parent, every child has asked you this question one point. Why is God invisible? Why can't we see God, right? You guys get that question? You've wondered that question yourself? He wasn't. He wasn't. He was right there face to face. We could walk with him. We could hang out with him. We lost that kind of access. That's the greatest loss of the fall. We didn't have to have faith or hope then because it was right there. Sight was there. Look at verse 24. What does it say? The cherubim is guarding the way to the tree of life. When was the last time you heard the word guard or keep? Who was that directed to? Adam. And now it's the cherubim. Everything is flipped over its head. We are supposed to be guarding the garden. And now the cherubim is guarding us from getting into the garden, getting into the presence of God and eating of that tree. But here's the good news. Let me end with good news. That Jesus comes to the earth and brings back 
God's presence. Emmanuel. What is it? Finish it with me. God with us. He comes back. And when he came the first time, the apostle Paul tells us exactly what Christ accomplished for you and me. Galatians 3.13. Read it out loud with me, please. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, a cross. Because we took of the tree that we ought not to have, Jesus gets on a tree for us. And Jesus took the crown of thorns so that one day we don't have to deal with the thorns. Jesus died so that one day death will be destroyed and we will have access to everlasting life. Did you know that we'll have access to that tree of life again? Do you know that? You'll get access again. Look at Revelation 2-7 quickly. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We will have access to that garden again, except it will be a garden city with a new Jerusalem coming down to this earth. And most importantly, we will have access to the presence of God. Quickly, Hebrews 10, 19. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the garden was the first prototype of the holy of holies in the temple. And the greatest news of the gospel is not that we will have a world without suffering, but that we will get to see God face to face, which results in no suffering. You see, don't get that order mixed up. That's the goal, him, getting God. That's the great news of the gospel. And the result of that is no more sin and suffering. Amen? All right, so I welcome the band to come up. And I'm gonna do something a little different. Is Daniel around? Okay, let's go, all right. I wanna do something a little different as they're coming up. I want to lead you to sing a famous Christmas carol. As many of you guys know, this special line, it's going to be on the screen. And I just want to sing it together with all of our hearts as we think about what God will do, has done, and will do. Let's see if I can get the, 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 the note. Would you sing with me? No more let sins and sorrows grow. Nor thorns invest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Amen.